The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my pleasure to welcome Stephanie Coglin. She is the owner of Seabreeze Organic Farm, and she has a marvelous story, and I love bringing farmers' voices to our listeners because it's so important for us to understand where our food comes from. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I had been interviewing you for a print story that I was working on, and your story was so interesting to me that I had to have you on. But you said a few things during our interview that made me realize your voice must be broadcast. And one was, if we don't have local farms, we don't have local security. So your story is that you left a very lucrative, mainstream business world and came to the farm. So tell me how you got from an office in the World Trade Center to a farm in San Diego. Well, it is a story that I think people find interesting, and I look at it that it gives people a solid story that someone else has done, that if they really wanted to change their life, they could. And for me, it was almost going full cycle, because as a child, we grew up in rural southern Texas and the southern part of California when children could roam and be free and ride horseback and just have a good time. And that's part of what the allure of farming is, is being able to be outside to actually produce something, to pass along knowledge to the next generation. Hopefully there's going to be more people wanting to do that. And it's a very satisfying way of life. You call your own shots and you pay your own consequences. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not easy. I mean, we talked about some of the challenges that you face, and I think that those of us who eat really need to understand the story of their food and the challenges that you face. I mean, you didn't just go from Wall Street to Seabreeze Organic Farm. You had some challenges along the way. Do you want to talk about what are the, what are those challenges that you want eaters to know? I think one of the first things is, without dampening a passion for it, also don't wear rose-colored glasses, because there's many people that have tried to do this, either through homesteading or actually as a business model, and they become discouraged and actually end up losing what they've started because of lack of planning and understanding that there's contingencies along the way that you have to cope with. And I think one of the cornerstones of success in being a farmer is stick-to-itiveness. I mean, we are a stubborn, independent um, lot, and frankly, it's because unless you've actually done it, it's hard to understand how many daily problems and crises can occur that need to be overcome. And we have a lot of new terminology in our culture now around food, sustainability, organic, natural, healthy, fat-free, and a lot of them perhaps aren't clearly defined. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I find interesting when I have people come to visit here is their definition of a farm. 
Now, my farm happens to be on a coastal piece of property between La Jolla and Del Mar in the San Diego area. I found it 35 years ago, and it's been by hook or crook to keep it. It's sort of a gone with the wind. This is my Terra story because it's such a beautiful piece of property. But because it's labeled a farm when people first get here, they look around, they start to understand the complexity of it, hopefully the beauty of it as well, and within just a few minutes I see people's eyes glaze over and I see them kind of revert to a collective consciousness about what a farm and a farmer is. And even after getting here and realizing that this is this is a very nice piece of real estate in a very good part of town, they'll ask me where the cows are. They'll ask me where the barn is. And it's because people have this concept of what a farm is. And it's very interesting to ask people, what is a farm? And just get them thinking. And they, you know, they'll say, well, it's a place where food is produced. And then the next question is, well, how is it produced? And it's very interesting to see people kind of peel back the onion of what we've had 40, 50 years since World War II of the agricultural machine, so to speak, in modern time, kind of take over the concept. But somehow people in their subconscious still have an idea of what a real farm should be. Mm-hmm. And it should be one that doesn't use chemicals, where people are compensated for their work, where they're putting out a quality product, and you're living with the animals. Nowadays, farms have animals collected in small places, and you have food production that's monocropping. So it's unusual now, unfortunately, to find that old model, even though it has a nostalgic ring to it, of people living on the land, nurturing the land, taking care of the animals, and the animals in the land giving back. That's a natural system. I don't think we have a natural system anymore when it comes to producing food. Do you? Oh, I agree with you. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to be on the radio program was to talk about the perception of what farms look like and yeah. what and the reality. And individuals like yourself who get it and who are bringing biodiversity back to smaller farms. I remember one of the things you told me was that people are surprised when you don't present yourself in a pair of overalls. Because that's the image that, you know, Madison Avenue has painted for us. What does a farm look like? Well, you're in your overalls, and there's a red barn, and there are some cows, right? That's the image. And someone that perhaps isn't very educated and is kind of slow and has the time to lean on their shovel and, you know, talk to you about the good old days. It's really, it's really quite amusing. It is. And the hours that farmers tell me that they work are way beyond the 40-hour traditional work week. Well, I, I was always amused. I did farmer's markets for years in San Diego. And Labor Day would roll around and the other holidays as well. And people being nice and wanting to make conversation, they said, well, what are you going to do for Labor Day? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be laboring, I'm sure. And it's the same thing that we do every day. It's, it's a continuous cycle that we foster and take care of and, as I said, gives back to us. One of the current terms that people are tossing around a lot is this concept of sustainability. And on some level, I know that people... People have an understanding, well, sustainable, it should be, and they have different perceptions of it. However, for the person that wants to try to do something like this or the younger person that knows that they want to do something with their lives, 
they have to really take a look at what the word sustainable is. It's more than just input-output on the farm. You really have to start with an economic model. Because for the people that lose their farms, you remember back in the 80s when the loans were so available, farmland was going up and the loans were available and people invested in big machinery, but they weren't quite big enough to compete against the people with big money taking over large amounts. And, of course, now even it's 160 acres or so can produce if they get the farm subsidies. And that's a whole issue altogether, too, of what's being done with the taxpayer's agricultural dollar. Mm -hmm. But back to this word of sustainability, when people ask me, well, are you sustainable? And I look at them and I have to think, okay, now let's start at at the basics here. And I said, we are if we can maintain our economic level. Mm -hmm. And they look and they don't quite get it because there's not a connection between farm as a business and farm as a place of nostalgia. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. And I like to talk about sustainability, and I don't know if, if you do as well, but I look at it like a three-legged stool. So absolutely, you've got the economic leg. There's the environmental piece, and we know you've got that because you're a certified organic farm. But then there's also the social piece and that's, that's the humanitarian correct. piece. So. Well, I think that sometimes, like when I hear uh, some of the agribusinesses say, you know, we're we're sustainable. Well, they've got the economic piece down pat for now, but they're not paying attention to the environmental piece, you know, or or the humane, the social component of that. You know, one of the things that you had told me, and I would like for you to really get into greater depth with regard to this comment, is that you said you see great dangers with our present food system. And I'm sure they keep you up at night because they keep me up at night, too. What do you see as the great dangers? The number one thing is I see the disconnect uh, from people to where their food is coming from, how it's being produced, and what's actually in it. We're a soft society. I remember my mother talking about after World War II and the push to get women back into the kitchen because they were needed in the war effort. And it was... They enticed them with the new modern gadgets, the washing machine, the refrigerator, indoor toiletry. I mean, a very large part of America's population, all of that was new to them after the war. And once the pre-cooked food, can you remember TV dinner? Oh, yes. When those were first introduced? And that was the start of this huge conglomeration of food processing. I mean, the food now in the grocery store, there's really only one good place in an entire supermarket where there's good value for your dollar. And it's tucked away usually in the middle aisles down at the bottom where you can hardly see it. And it's dried beans. Yeah, I was going to guess that when you were saying Dried yeah. beans. It's, it's not even the fresh produce or fruit. Everything, because, of course, who knows where all of that came from. And, of course, nothing's labeled in terms of country of origin, so you have no idea where it came from. But the packaging on food these days and consumers of course have, you know we're supposed to be educated about read the label okay well you read the label and you go sodium and this and fat and cholesterol and then if you can't read if you can't pronounce the items that are on a packaged product of food frankly i don't think you should eat it it doesn't have any resemblance to its original form anymore mm-hmm 
One of the other dangers that we had spoken about was this whole issue of transportation. And I know you've lived your life in sunny climates, but I can tell you that whenever there is the threat of a snowstorm, uh, the grocery store pretty much clears out in preparation for being holed up for a few days. And yet you recognize how dependent we are on this transportation line. And if something should go wrong, we're out of food. Hence your comment, if you don't have local farms, you don't have local security. That's correct. And why do you think we are not recognizing this? Is it that, well, I think more of us are, but this whole idea of taking the food system for granted, how do we not take it for granted? You would think with all of the daily news about, as you brought up, child obesity, and we have all of the, the diabetes is frankly frightening when you think about the number of people people that are developing different forms of diabetes. I think we're just people are so bombarded. Environmental degradation, you know, loss of the soil, the southwest we're all supposed to be preparing for a major drought. Mm-hmm. And food is still a comfort item. And it's been such a solid base of being plentiful and cheap and provided mm-hmm. for for so many years that you're right, people absolutely take it for granted. And I can't think of anything that gets someone back in touch with themselves and nature and calming themselves than being able to work outside. And that's where I would, the, the, the idea of community gardens and the number of people that are on food stamps, mm-hmm. it's just staggering to me. And there's, I can drive around a neighborhood and I go, oh, beautiful lot that would be perfect for such and such but you know i have that eye of wanting to have land produce something but community gardens are such a way to pull people together not only for the nutritional aspect of it but also for cultures because we do have so many cultures now in america that each are vying to they they want to maintain their own cultural identity instead of blending which is the way we're going with that right now but it's best if cultures can cross over. And if you have a community garden and someone from some part of the world grows the most tasty, beautiful tomatoes you've ever had, and someone else from an entirely different religious or cultural or, or political point of view has something else that you want, it's a meeting ground. There's a mutuality, and I think that's what Carlo Petrini wanted to come across with the slow food movement that was started, what, 20 years, 15 mm-hmm. years ago now. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, slow food, if people are familiar, it's become more of a dinner club now. Yeah. But the original concept was to get people rooted back from where the food actually came and the sitting down and sharing the partaking of the food, not only the production of it. And I've never found a more perfect setting for people to overcome their differences and find their commonality than over a dinner table. I agree. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Stephanie Coughlin. She is the owner of Seabreeze Organic Farm in San Diego. But what makes Stephanie so intriguing is the fact that she came to farming after having a career as a gold broker and then CEO of a futures trading company with an office at the World Trade Center. Stephanie, how old were you when you went back to the farm? Forty. Forty. It was was a very definitive time because I I took a look at the different professions that I had had. I taught high school and I'd been in the mortgage business. I learned that. But as I said, always being an outdoor person. But 
when you take a look at your life's continuum, you know, 40 is kind of like a halfway mark, and it's like, if I don't do what I really want to do now, I may not have the resources of this street to do it later. Mm-hmm. And it's been quite a path, and this will be the 24th year that I've been creating a business and living off a very small piece of property. One of the things we talked about with regard to sustainability, and we didn't touch on it, and I want to go back to it, and that is health care. This is really essential for farmers to, isn't there an African proverb that says, if you, you've got to take care of yourself first before you can take care of others. And I see farming as taking care of others. You're feeding others. And yet your own health care, you don't have it, do you? No, no. And in the lean years, because there have been many lean years for a variety of reasons when sales go down, and we are a CSA, a community-sponsored agriculture. The idea of that is to have the person that produces and handles uh, the growing uh, of the food as a direct link to the consumer. And we need the consumer to understand that it's not easy to do. However, and that we need that continuum of the income in order to plan and plant and, and harvest our things. But when there's a, right after 9-11, it was very interesting because I thought that perhaps we would have more interest in the farm because people would want to support a local endeavor and a local food source. And instead of looking at us as a safety zone, I, people almost were like little turtles pulling their heads in their shell. We had a lot of cancellations. Really? And then after the economic turn down in 08, we had a huge drop in our clientele base because of the economic insecurity of everyone. And I had people tell me that they viewed me as a luxury oh. instead of a necessity. Oh. So you can do you know, a grand job in what you're doing, but you also are subject to waves that are beyond your control. When those times happen, like any other farmer, the last thing we want to do is borrow against our property. But I'll bet you that the majority of food-producing, small family-owned food-producing farms have mortgages and rely on the equity in their farms when times get bad. So there's just plain old not enough money to go around for most growers like myself to come up with the cash to do health care. Mm-hmm. My liability, farm insurance, just tripled this year. Oh, my. My water bill from when I first started 25 years ago used to be right about $85, $90 a month. This last September, that water bill for the same amount of land was $2,200. We face challenges that it's really hard for the consumer to understand that if we really were to put the true value of what it cost us to grow something, perhaps a head of lettuce would be more like $6 instead of $2. Right. But because we have the farm policies that we have, we have a lot of supported corporational farms that help keep the price of food down. So it's really hard to make that transition. We have to be an educated public. I wanted to ask you about the water situation because... I know in in Southern California, certainly, and also your home in South Texas, these are regions that are truly suffering droughts unknown before. Terrible, just terrible. Where do you see the water situation going? I mean, how much more can you possibly pay for water? Well, California is 
California is pretty famous for shooting itself in the foot. We get most of our water either from Northern California or from Colorado River. And during, during the last 15 years, San Diego, well, a lot of California just approved housing developments just from border to border almost. And as growers, as farmers, as people that need and use water to produce food, we would look at this and it was just like, where is all this water coming from? So it's a real, it's, it's looming on the horizon. We cut back and we economize water as much as, as we can. But I hate to be forced into hydroponic growing when I truly believe that the best nutrition and the best food comes out of living healthy soil. Mm-hmm. not hydroponics, and I'm afraid that that's the direction that we're going a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that reminds me of a, of a Chinese proverb, as we're speaking of proverbs, something to the effect that the frog does not drink up the pond in which it lives. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great one. Yeah. That's what we do to ourselves when we have environmental taking too much, and there's many, many reports coming out now about the loss of topsoil. It's interesting if you were to do a a slice of of my land that you can see that it's actually been built up over the years as we create our soil and the properties on the other sides of us go down with erosion. Mm -hmm. And with the tilling and with the the inability for the land to reestablish itself, to rejuvenate, the, the methods that we're using now for cultivation, they're depleting the soil and not giving it a chance for it to be what it really is. And it's a medium that's living, teeming life. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned that you used to sell at a farmer's market, and now you do a CSA. And your CSA is unique because you do home deliveries. Most CSAs have a drop-off point. And when I considered the uh, economic model to do this, it's sort of like the niche marketing, where... What service can I provide to a select amount of people that will be able to afford this and appreciate it? And some people like to be able to go to a farmer's market, although these days I have real problems with the development, the course that the farmer's markets have now taken in California, or they go to pick them up at a designated spot. And being a woman and knowing what I like, I asked myself, if I had money again, what would I want? I'd want a bouquet of flowers. I'd like fresh vegetables. I'd like fresh fruits. I'd like the option of eggs and other good farm products. And could you leave it at my door, please? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, you mentioned, I think I got this off of your website, that you, or maybe you said this, that you have 130 families that you serve. It fluctuates about 130 up to about 150. We could actually provide more. But that's our base. And what is the absolute minimum that you need to survive doing this model? If you break, if you break it down by week, we have to gross, and we do most of the time, on little under two acres, we have to gross a minimum of $7,000 a week. I just, I'm hungry. Well, my mouth is hanging open because yes. you're feeding 130 families on two acres? Yes. We've had agronomists, scientists, culinary people from all over the world. I once had five Chinese agricultural ministers come from China to do a tour here because our production is so high. We do vertical growing. Uh We do triple cropping, 
You can take a five-foot, I know some of your listeners can identify with this, that have home gardens. You can take a bed that's five feet wide, and let's, let's, let's call it 100 feet long. Yeah. If you could, it, just like the Indians used to do with the corn and the beets, and the, they would plant corn, uh, they would have beans going up, and then you could do squash at the bottom. That's yes. a triple crop. The three sisters. Well, some of the things that we do here is if we plant broccoli, Maybe perhaps we'll go in and, along with the broccoli, seed French breakfast radishes. Now, it does a little bit of soil depletion for the broccoli, but within 21 days you can harvest those radishes, replenish the soil, and then in another four to five weeks you'll be harvesting your broccoli. So you're actually getting two, sometimes three crops, out of a small amount of land. And if you are doing your business model in terms of how much money can I get back Per square foot, if you take five feet times a hundred bed, that's five hundred feet. And if you're trying to get two dollars per square foot, which you need to do on very small places, that's X amount of dollars. And then here in Southern California, we can turn a crop every sixty-seven days on an average. Wow. I mean, we don't have winters like you all do. We don't. Yeah. We, so on, on the one hand, the, the winters are harsh, but on the other hand, you get to catch up with life. Yeah. <laughs> in Southern California, you never stop. It's a continuous production. How did you learn these skills of such intensive production? Well, you know, my sister, who lives in Italy, uh, years ago asked me that question. And I stood there because I really wanted to give her the real answer. And I said, you know, I pay attention. <laughs> yeah. The sign of a good farmer. You know, you look at a plant, what's wrong with you? You need water, you need food, you look at your checkbook and your bank account, and you go, what's wrong with you? How can I make this better? Yeah. And it just, it's, you, you, it, being around living, growing things stimulates, I think, your creativity. I agree. You, you, you're constantly having to come up with solutions. What do they call them now? Challenges? Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, we only have a minute left. And I have two things that I want to cover. One was a brilliant statement, another proverb that you shared with me. It was a Spanish proverb, I believe, that said, we are five meals away from anarchy. That's right. So I want to give you a chance to comment on that if you'd like. But I also want to give you a chance to just leave our listeners with some messages that I neglected to bring up. You know, the thing about anarchy, its we've seen it. We saw it two years ago when global food prices went up so much and the riots started breaking out. You know, the one day you can go by with your family and not eat anything, by the second day you want to take matters into your own hand. You've got to solve your own problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it would behoove people to keep a certain amount of food in storage for themselves, to get the most value from their dollar, and I don't mean a dollar burger. Find out what foods have the most nutrition. We gave the example of the dried bean section. Right. Grow your own greens. It's so easy to do. And there's many, many ways that you can provide for yourself. And it gives you a peace of mind in this world of uncertainty to know that you can be more self-sufficient. Well, Stephanie, I want to thank you for entering this world of food production because you're doing such a responsible method of farming, and the world needs more of you. Well, thank you, and thank you for being able to broadcast this and to get people involved and interested in it. Well, I want to refer people to your website and remind our listeners we've been speaking with Stephanie Coughlin. She is the owner of Seabreeze Organic Farm in San Diego, California, 
her website is simply http colon double backslash Stephanie and Stephanie is spelled S T E P H E N I E stephaniefarm.com and you can see Stephanie on a short video and learn more about her methods. Stephanie, I want to thank you for being my guest and I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Stephanie, I wish you the best of luck in the future. You as well, Melinda. Thank you so much. Thank you.